Amen. Thank you, Pastor. And thank you so much, choir and Gordon and Carol. What a wonderful, beautiful way that we've been able to worship the Lord today to hear his praises sung. Happily. And didn't they look happy as they did that? That was just wonderful. Well, we continue along in our series entitled We Sing to Jesus as we look at uh, passages of Scripture in the New Testament that are either hymns or considered to be portions of hymns, perhaps. At least they were penned in such a way to lend themselves to having been sung in praise to the living God. And so I invite you to give your attention today to 1 Timothy chapter 1. We'll read verses 12 through 17. We will primarily be considering verse 17. But in order to get context, let's read all of those verses. 1 Timothy chapter 1, beginning with verse 12. Hear the word of God. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And so as the grass withers and the flower fades, the word of the Lord stands forever. This is the word which by the gospel is preached to you. Amen. And so this world is a mess. As many of us are drawn into the news stories of the day, whether it's the war and fighting in the Ukraine or whether it's just the general disintegration of society, we find ourselves drawn into these stories. It reminds me how the years ago when I would be making hospital rounds, it astounded me as I was doing them typically in the afternoons in the Charlotte area that patient after patient as I would visit them in the hospital all seemed to be watching the same show. Jerry Springer. And I would tell them every once in a while, I said, if you would just change the channel, you could get better probably days earlier and be able to go home. <laughs> Little did I know that that dramatized nonsense would be typical for a cable news show in our present day. It seems like that that's the thing that draws everybody in. Everything is dramatized today as if events weren't dramatic enough. And it has people asking questions oftentimes. Where is God in all this? I mean, after all, why doesn't he just dispatch Vladimir Putin and get rid of him so that things could go better in the Ukraine? Well, if you'll read a little deeper into such stories, you'll find out that Putin's second in command is not somebody we would want in charge of things either. If he were taken out tomorrow, probably somebody worse would take his place. But the question can easily be answered, where is God in all of this? He's exactly where he's always been. He is on his throne, reigning sovereignly from on high. 
doing things in a way that our minds can't begin to comprehend. Because God's ways are above our ways. His thoughts are above our thoughts. And he has a glorious purpose that we will one day at least see in part. And it will take ages for all of it to unfold before us as we understand the kindness that he has demonstrated in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is simply beyond our ability to understand in these present days. They certainly aren't going to ascertain it on whatever cable news network you are watching. But even as we who have been enlightened in the true knowledge of Jesus, the Son of God, so that we might understand the things of God's word, can't comprehend them fully either. But whatever we are able to comprehend, it is by way of our having experienced God in a personal way. The Lord Jesus talks about his, or rather the Apostle Paul, talks about his own experience with the Lord Jesus that has enabled him to understand something of God's purposes. Here was a man who was a persecutor of the people of God, a man who opposed the very work of Christ himself, and yet who was confronted by the Lord Christ on the road to Damascus when he was arrested there, not by authority so that he was thrown into a jail or incarcerated, but so that he was convinced of his own sinfulness and blinded in the glorious light of the Lord Jesus, came to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus, as he, having been born again unto a living hope, was enabled by God to trust in the one he had persecuted by faith in Jesus. It is an astounding story. And as Paul is recounting that for his son in the faith, Timothy, he, he minces no words. Formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy. That's the story of all of us, isn't it? That our past has been checkered, that we have not a stellar record that can be presented. Not one of us is in the kingdom of God today because we're better than others around us. No, it is because we have received mercy. As we recounted in our new members' uh, supper in class on Wednesday evening, we talked about how that, uh, you know, the first thing we have to do is acknowledge ourselves to be a sinner in the sight of God, justly deserving his displeasure. That's contrary to cultural thinking today. Uh, most of the thinking today is you deserve God's good pleasure. You deserve a break today. Remember that one? By the way, go get it by picking up a hamburger at McDonald's. You deserve it. But we acknowledge, no, we don't deserve God's mercy and grace. We don't deserve his favor. We deserve his wrath. That's what the word displeasure means. And so we have to acknowledge that. That we have no hope except in the sovereign mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. But, oh, what a sovereign mercy that is. You can't have anything better than that. And so Paul acknowledges this glorious grace. This grace of our Lord overflowed for me. It's wonderful when we read about something overflowing like that. It means there's more of it than we need. Where sin abounds, there does grace much more abound. As Paul articulates elsewhere. And he says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom he says, I am the foremost. And so, in spite of what the news says today, we recognize, realize that there is hope, because Jesus has come into the world to save people like us. Not the deserving, but the undeserving. Not those who are good enough ever to be able to commend ourselves to God, but those of us who have, well... We've done it our way, which is the wrong way, and therefore has us on a pathway to destruction. But Jesus has come himself. God has come himself 
to perform this act of rescue. He has come into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief or foremost, Paul says. And it is in the recounting of this experience that he falls into this glorious doxology, this statement of praise and adoration that we so joyfully read. And it reminds us, as Phil Riken has said in one of his commentaries, if God is the king of the ages, and of course he is, that's a rhetorical statement, if God is king of the ages, then he deserves to be praised for all eternity. And the destiny of every child of God is to be wrapped up in the adoration of God throughout the endless ages. There is no greater enjoyment for the child of God than to praise and adore our gracious and loving and merciful God. And so Paul, in this doxology in verse 17, to God, who is the king, God, the king of the ages. The king immortal. Yes, God is king of the ages. Eternal. He is unaffected by the passing of time. He is transcendent, but he is always present and active in his rule over all. That's a basic declaration of who God is. The very definition of God means that he is sovereign, otherwise, he wouldn't be God. And so as we declare God to be the king, we are declaring his sovereignty over all things. And it's astounding to us because the more we come to learn about this world, the more we learn how vast it is. We've got a new telescope out there orbiting around the earth. And uh, it will increasingly show us in brilliant fashion just how vast and huge and glorious is this universe. And it boggles our minds to think that we live, as astronomers have said, on this pale blue dot, which is insignificant in the great vast expanse of the universe. And yet here we are on this very small, tiny speck in the middle of it all. And yet God not only is governing and maintaining and holding together this whole order of the universe that is, that is incomprehensible to me, yet he is mindful of each of our needs as we're sitting here at this very moment. How is that possible? Because he is the king. He is the sovereign God who reigns and rules from on high. As someone has said, there's not even a stray molecule out in the vast expanse of that universe at this very moment. Not even one rogue microscopic particle. God is ruling. And so we don't have to sit and wonder in puzzlement about whether things are going to turn out all right. We may be wringing our hands. God never wrings his hands, figuratively speaking. And his rule and reign are not only for the past and those who knew him 2,000 years ago in the time of the Apostle Paul, but he reigns in the present even as he has reigned from all eternity. And he will always reign. My uh, systematic Theology professor, I should say our professor, because Kathy had him too, seminary. Dr. Douglas Kelly, brilliant man. First time I heard him speak, I thought I can understand him. He was from North Carolina. <laughs> eastern part of the state, which is really kind of, of a different state than up in the western part. But nevertheless, he, he spoke in a language I could understand. I thought, I, I know this dialect, but brilliant. 
he not only could speak Eastern North Carolinian, he could also speak French and German and Latin and Gaelic fluently, among other things. Just a wonderful man of God who brought into that systematics theology class a, a wonderful experience of being a pastor as well. And in his uh, first volume of his systematic theology, he speaks of this sovereign rule of the Lord in saying, What philosophers and theologians debate and in some cases resist, that very thing is believed by ordinary Christians. And it is their testimony, not the wranglings of the hesitant intellectuals of the church, that wins multitudes to Christ and changes the world. I think it was... Uh, one of the first who came to a saving faith of the Lord Jesus in the midst of the English Reformation, Bilney, Thomas Bilney, I believe it was, who was struggling with how he might know that he could go to heaven when he died, went to his priest and was asking for help and assistance in this whole matter. How can I know? And, and he was advised to fast and pray and perform religious rituals and it was extremely depressing to him until he secretly obtained a copy of the new testament in greek something he wasn't supposed to have and he read this very passage that the apostle paul says that uh, as he declares this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that christ jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom i am the foremost and he was astounded to realize Paul thought of himself as the foremost of sinners and yet saved. And suddenly the light dawned on this man and he realized that salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone, that that's our hope. And he suddenly had the assurance that he had been seeking, not as a result of his own efforts, but in coming to a realization of this glorious grace of God. So we recognize that God is the king for all time and for all eternity, that this rule and reign is unaffected by the passing of time. The events of any generation in no wise diminish God's glory or his sovereignty. He is transcendent. He is beyond us, and we would be unable to know him except that he's revealed himself to us. Many a scholar, many an intellectual has said, well, if there is a God, it would be impossible to know him. Well, that's true. Unless that one who is unknowable revealed himself to us. And that's precisely what he's done through his written word and especially through Jesus Christ, who is the word made flesh. He's communicated himself to us so that the one who is, yes, transcendent, is nevertheless present and active in his rule over all. We're not deists. We don't believe that God created everything like a clockmaker would make a clock and just wind it all up and let it run down while he goes away and is absent from the world on a cloud somewhere. No, God is present and active in world affairs and active in our lives. He's holding us together through the Lord Jesus Christ. He's given us the very breath that we breathe at this moment. He is sovereignly attending all things. And, and my inability to understand those things in no wise diminishes God's purpose. He doesn't need me to understand his ways in order to operate the world the way that he is. And it brings me to the place that I'm even thankful that he governs the world, not according to how I think he ought to do it. I mean, can you imagine that the, world, the, the mess that the world would be in if suddenly tomorrow God began to operate it in a way that made sense to us? 
You think about that. I mean, I, I can't even get my dog to do what I want her to do. You know, I would think we, we feed this animal, you know, and, and she ought to be happy to see me. I come walking in the door. She takes one look at me and goes to Kathy in the bedroom. And you think I've got sense enough to, to be able to to have this world operate in a way that, that would come out good? We must trust God and have faith in him. The other thing we see, of course, is that God is immortal. That means he's beyond all degradation and death. It, it means his glory, his power are never diminished. We see people who come on the scene who perform great feats and do great things, but ultimately things diminish. People grow older and their minds are not what they used to be. Mine's not what it used to be. It never was what I thought it ought to be. Sometimes I think I'm doing really well, you know, and then I'll be in the same room with somebody who's smart, and I'm thinking, wow, where is my brain? It went away on vacation years ago and never came back. There is nothing that ever diminishes God's power and glory. When we think of words that are incomprehensible to us, like omnipotent, that is, he has all power. And when we think of his having omniscience, that is, all knowledge, God never is forgetful. My, uh, one of my dearest friends growing up, as I've shared with you, Bud Wissenhunt, World War II veteran, was in Patton's Third Army in World War II and came home and managed a test farm in Haywood County and then a fertilizer factory. He had a saying when we'd forget somebody's name, he'd say, I never will forget old what's-his-name. Do you realize God has never had a moment like that? When he's about to bestow grace and mercy on a dear soul who suddenly will come to a realization of sin and be drawn by the Spirit of God into that eternal loving relationship with him through Christ Jesus, he never gets caught in a moment and says, Oh, if I could only remember her name. Never. Nor will he ever. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Written in the present tense, that means nevertheless for all time. No diminishment of any of that. We read otherwise in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 16, of the one who has become a priest, not on the basis of regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. This glorious teaching of God's immortality, of his eternality, is realized in the person of the Lord Jesus. Yes, physically the Lord Christ died on the cross, but, but God wasn't put to death. I know we sing the hymn, and I love it. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? And we realize that God... The Son of Man died on the cross, but, but God didn't die. The Son of Man gave his life for us, but God ever lives. And, and though Jesus gave his life on the cross, ultimately there was, there was no possible way he was ever going to remain in that tomb. It, it simply is not possible that Christ could have remained under the power of death because he always did what was pleasing to the Father 
and having lived a perfect life and having completed the work that the Father had given him to do on this earth, it was an utter impossibility for him to remain in the grave because his is an indestructible life. And when we believe in him, we are joined in union with him. And our lives also shall endure forever. So when we read that God is immortal by means of his grace, being united with him, we also enjoy immortality. We see further in this glorious little verse, of course, that God is invisible. We can't see him now. He is therefore beyond the confines of space and distance. We think of Pastor John's favorite word right here, don't we? Ubiquitous. Thank you. Extra credit right over here. He's everywhere. He is never confined to be in one location because God is omnipresent. So when we read the word invisible, it's not just describing our inability to see him at the moment. It's telling us that God is far greater than anything we have ever seen with our eyes. Immortal, invisible. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in inapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. Sinful eyes cannot look upon God. We can't look at him and live. The Bible tells us in no uncertain terms. And we read of Moses' testimony in Hebrews 11. By faith, when Moses left Egypt, it wasn't because he feared the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. Now, if you want something to occupy our feeble minds for the rest of the day, just think about that verse. He saw him who is invisible. But isn't that, what, isn't that what's happened Inasmuch as we've trusted in the Lord Jesus, one we cannot see in our present circumstances, yet we have believed in him. And as we believed in him, we have seen glorious things. Oh, I could say so much about this wonderful teaching of God's sovereignty and his revealing himself to us. How that in Colossians chapter 1, for example, as Paul speaks of the Son, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. A glorious truth. And people who have believed this through the ages have been greatly used of God to accomplish his purposes. Think of William Carey, who gave up everything to go to India to be a missionary there and labored for years without even seeing one convert and even having his manuscripts in which he had laboriously worked to translate the scriptures into the language of the people that they could understand it there. And it was burned up in moments. And he lamented. And yet he later said that because those manuscripts were burned, that he saw a, a, a greater work come from that than anything he had seen in those previous years because people heard about it and they gave like never before and they began to pray for him as they hadn't prayed before. And he saw fruit in his ministry. I think of Charles Simeon of Cambridge who showed up at his church and they welcomed him by locking the doors so that he couldn't get in. 
They even fixed it so people couldn't even get in their seats to be able to sit down. They locked the pews. And he preached and labored there for seven years, even though people were, were by and large against him completely. But he persevered and God moved and worked through that man. And a great movement of the Spirit took place. Stories abound. I think in my own home county, a, a man by the name of Daniel Boone Messer, who grew up just ordinarily in Haywood County, found himself serving in the United States Army during the Korean War. And during a furlough, was in Japan. And when he was in Japan, he was invited to attend a meeting that was led by two individuals, Mitsuo Fuchida and Jake DeShazer. Mitsuo Fuchida had been the squadron commander on Pearl Harbor, 7th of December, 1941. Had given the command, all squadrons attack. Torah, Torah, Torah. You saw the movie, perhaps. And more U.S. sailors died that day than had died in all of the First World War. And Mitsuo Fuchida was a hero in Japan, but he was a disillusioned man because he had hoped for a world of peace. And he saw nothing but death and destruction following that war. And yet, God saved him. Jacob DeShazer, who had flown with Doolittle in the first raid over Tokyo, was among those who were shot down. He was captured by the Japanese. He was tortured mercilessly. And all he could think about was, was getting his hands on his captors and throttling them. He wanted to kill them. Until there fell into his hands somehow by the providence of God a passage of Scripture. And he saw in the Scriptures, Behold, I make all things new. And Jacob DeShazer became new. And after the war, he did go back to Japan, not to kill his tormentors, but to preach the gospel to them. And Mitsuo Fuchida heard about his story, and he surrendered his life to the Lord Jesus Christ. And these once upon a time sworn enemies began preaching together. And Daniel Boone Messer heard the gospel message, and he surrendered his life to Jesus Christ and trusted in him. He came home. He became a Gideon. He distributed Bibles in Eastern Europe and in the Soviet Union. And one day with his wife in the Haywood County Hospital, he was sharing his testimony with the lady who was checking them in. And he said, I've always wanted to meet the pastor who invited Fuchida and DeShazer to that place, to have that meeting. But I, I cannot even remember his name. His, his name sounded like something in German. And I've always wanted to meet him. And he was sharing that story. And suddenly the lady who was admitting him, her hands flew up to her face. And she began to sob. And she said, that was my father, Harold Borchert. Dan Messer said, I wish I could have met him. She said, you can. He's 96 years old, living right here in Waynesville. Now, we can talk about luck, but there's no luck in that. And on a Wednesday evening at the Hazelwood Presbyterian Church, we had the joy. Of seeing these two dear saints reunited, telling the old, old story of Jesus and his love. We serve a sovereign God who works all things together for the good of those that love him and are the called according to his purpose. And so we recognize in joyful homage that he is the only God without equal or rivals whatsoever. Remember the former things. Those of long ago, 
I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. And we can read on in that glorious chapter in Isaiah. In which he says, I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. From the east, a sermon of bird of prey. From far off land, a man to fulfill my purpose. What I have said, that I will bring about. What I have planned, that I will do. Listen to me, you stubborn hearted. You who are now far from my righteousness. I am bringing my righteousness near. It is not far away. And my salvation will not be delayed. I will grant salvation to Zion, my splendor to Israel. God is in control. We never have to worry ourselves about whether this world has gone so far in the wrong direction that it is unrecoverable. And you can never wonder so far from him that you are unsalvageable. God is in the rescue business, and it is precisely in the matter of salvation that we come to rejoice most in God's sovereignty, to know that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it, even under the day of Christ Jesus. (laughs) Is that because God has taken some goodness in me and, and been able to work with it and said, well, there's not much, but I'll do what I can. Or is it because it is entirely his work from first to last, his grace from first to last, his goodness from first to last, so that all the glory and honor are his? Don't you see the praise and the worship of God, the proclamation of the glory of God, is the means by which we find our greatest joy and fulfillment. It's no wonder that Paul falls into this glorious doxology in declaring such a wondrous thing. This past week I was uh, contemplating the favorite hymn of a dear friend of mine. Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? Now I know that in some modern editions, in fact in our hymnal, instead of saying worm, it says a sinner such as I. But, you know, being the person I am, I grew up singing it one way, so oftentimes I'm the only worm in the house. That's the way I sing it, regardless of the way the rest of you do. That's just the way I see things. I was telling my friend that, and he said, well, you're one of the nicest worms I know. And I was reading some things that people had to say about that this past week. And, you know, one was saying, well, it's not diminishing the hymn whatsoever. The meaning is still there. A sinner such as I equates to being a worm and so forth. And I get that. I get it. But one writer said this. said, Isaac Watts, who was the composer, understood fully that a worm is the only thing that can become a butterfly in this world. Now, I don't know about you, but I never equated worm with caterpillar before just never happened in my mind. And I realized that Isaac Watts, born in the 1600s, that that was an accurate way for people then to think of that whole transformation, a worm to a butterfly. What else but a sovereign God could do something like that? Take lost sinners like us, deserving of his displeasure, transforming us to perform in us a work of beauty 
which will continue to astound us 10,000 years from now as we contemplate the glorious and wondrous grace of a loving God who has all power and all might and has displayed it in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus, who took our sins upon him. And in exchange for our sins, we gain his righteousness. What else but a sovereign God could do that? And how could we do anything other than proclaim to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be all honor and glory forever and ever. There's only one thing to say to that. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, grant to us, O Lord, that we may understand things that would otherwise be incomprehensible to us. We recognize that we too were once dead in our sins and trespasses. But you have raised us. That we who once dwelt in darkness have seen the marvelous light. That is Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, grant to your people that we may rejoice even in dark days when war is raging in the world around us. Lord, restore our hope. And move us, O God, to praise you and to adore you, for you are worthy. And Lord, please bless that in the heart of that person at this moment who is doubting, who is still skeptical, who has still yet not surrendered all to Jesus, wouldn't you be pleased to grant that glorious grace and that by the power of your Holy Spirit, his her eyes might be opened. That you would draw that dear one irresistibly, even unto Jesus, that in recognition of sin and guilt might joyfully repent and embrace your means of rescue, even your own beloved son. Father, I realize this would not be because of the one who is speaking, but in spite of him. And so, Father, Whatever you choose to do on this day in each of our lives, we pray that you'll accomplish it in a way that all glory, honor, and praise is yours, always and forever. Through Jesus, we ask it. Amen. I invite you to take your hymnals, or otherwise, not taking hymnals. Boy, old habits are hard to break. You got your worship holder and you got the screens. Let's just stand together and sing this wonderful compilation. His name is Wonderful. And turn your eyes upon Jesus.
Wow, thank you both so much. Just want to remind you, you're invited back to that congregational meeting after the 11 o'clock service sometime after the noon hour. And remember especially this evening at 6.30, union with Christ. You don't want to miss it. In the meantime, may grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit be with and abide with you now and forevermore. And everyone said together, Amen. Amen.